presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. The state of Colorado reimbursed $62 million to K-12 school districts for transportation costs last school year. This represents a 21% of the $290 million spent on the districts for students to go to and from school. Some districts are working harder to modernize and streamline these services. But school transportation today does not look significantly different than it did 50 years ago. The amount of time and resources districts invest in their transportation operations is a clear sign of the important role it plays in meeting the educational needs of students. At the same time, miles-driven transporting students to and from schools has decreased by 21% over a 10-year period. The number of students eligible for transportation has also dropped, albeit more slowly, by 8% since 2012. These findings leave me with a lot of unanswered questions, and furthermore, it is hard for the state leaders and the general public to understand how to best leverage the funds without better information around how school districts are utilizing these dollars to serve the learner. Today, I'm joined by two of CSI's very own education experts to discuss the transportation problems facing the districts and the state's role in ensuring that their needs are met. Jason Golden is our education fellow and a partner of Oak Rose Group, a consulting firm specializing in education, workforce development, and economic mobility. Jason, it's great to have you back again. Oh, thanks. I love being here with you. and happy to have this conversation. Well, let's hope you feel that way afterwards. <laughs> I'm pleased to welcome Kelly. Kelly Caulfield is CSI's education director and a former vice president of government affairs for Colorado Succeeds a coalition of business leaders dedicated to improving public education. Kelly, it's great to have you with here, and it's wonderful to have your leadership at CSI here in Colorado. Thank you, Earl. Always enjoy spending time with you. Well, thank you both of you for joining us today. Let's get started right away, though. Jason, let's start with a brief overview of the issue. How is school transportation funded and operated? What are districts' responsibilities, and how big is the state's role in this particular issue? Great question to kind of give a lay of the land. Student transportation is the responsibility of a school district by choice. There's no legal obligation for districts to provide transportation to and from school. They all do because they all recognize that's a huge component of fair access to education. So they use what they have in their per-pupil spending That's a combination of local taxes, state funds, and federal funds. So they budget transportation, they execute transportation, and collectively, Colorado school districts spend about $290 million a year. The state has a separate pot of money, a categorical fund, from which they reimburse school districts for that transportation to the tune of about 20 to 25% in any given year. So districts spend the money. They get a portion of it back from the state. I had no idea that the school district was not obligated to uh, provide transportation. Definitely an interesting finding. I also didn't know that school districts are under no obligation to provide transportation. Uh, They do it. There's no restrictions on how they do it. So they actually have the freedom to innovate. And that's part of the problem. We're not seeing enough of that. 
I understand you've spent a lot of time looking at the state's funding data, obviously, by the answer to my previous question. What do they tell us about the problem districts are facing? How have things changed over the last decade or so? And are there any gaps? Are we, are we missing something and some students are being they're not really given the opportunity to get to school or there's some difficulties? That's a layered question you've asked, so let me try to tackle it. First of all, we don't have the quality of data to know because the state doesn't collect ridership data. Only the districts do that if they so choose. And so the difference between uh, how much their how much funding they receive for transportation is not connected to actual students being served. It's loosely connected to how many miles they drive, but even that is just a projection that happens one day a year. So that's part of the question. So in addition, we see different kinds of problems in different parts of the state. In rural areas, um, you find burdensome drive times because the routes are so long in order to collect all of the students in need of rides. In urban areas, you have different problems such as uh, actually, this is a universal problem. There is a shortage of bus drivers, and that's affecting both urban and rural uh, school districts. And part of that is because there are some overly onerous federal regulations uh, that have restricted the kinds of bus drivers that districts can hire. Is there some certification, CTP or something? Yeah, it's called a CDL, a commercial CDL? driver's okay. license. Okay. The problem is the feder- the federal standards have been designed for long-haul, over-the-road drivers. And so that's not a standard that's applicable at the local level where you're driving very short routes for very limited amounts of time, being held to the same standard as long-haul drivers who, by the way, have to pass rigorous drug testing. We understand that. Uh, But also they are worried about sleep apnea. So if you have a certain size neck, uh, that's an indication of uh, health concerns and you can be ineligible to get um, a CDL. Things like that Without are that being Sleep apnea being that you can, you can fall asleep or doze Sorry. or and, and so you have a difficult time staying awake or you can have a difficult time and that's dangerous for the kids in the bus if yep. a person has difficulty staying awake. Late in the evening or early in the morning. That's exactly the problem. Uh, That's at the federal level. At the state level, we're here in Colorado where marijuana is legalized, and that is a a prohibitive factor for getting um, drivers because most people think since it's legal, they can do it on their personal out-of-work time. Uh, But any indication of, of marijuana usage disqualifies someone from driving, so that further shrinks the available driver pool. I can't imagine paying a bus driver the same as you would an 18-wheeler, driver of an 18-wheeler, and they both have the same certification. Or am I missing something? No, and and the problem is even deeper than that. So now there's the competitive forces in the local marketplace, okay? So you take school district bus driver wages, now you compare that to, say, our regional transportation district, or compare that to... Amazon, who's paying more, making it further harder to recruit and retain drivers and further shrinking the pool. The picture that I hear you painting, Jason, is that it's getting more expensive to transfer kids to school. You have to pay more for the drivers, I'm guessing. 
and you have just the actual buses and the transfer, the miles that they travel. Is this that fewer kids are riding buses as a result of all of this because it's not available, or are just fewer kids, period, are riding buses where in the past, under normal circumstances, more kids would be riding buses? Help me. What's going on here? You, you said there's a decrease yeah. in the number of children riding buses. Yeah, and I'm going to sound like a broken record because there is a deficiency of data. We know of the 800,000-plus K-12 students, uh, the state deems 330,000 or so eligible. And then what we got from a sampling of districts we were able to talk to is that there's a huge gap between the number of students who are eligible and those who actually ride. But it's not official because we don't have state data. Okay, but how would you explain that? How's that gap? Mom and dad are driving them, or the kids are riding bikes longer distances, or they've got some other means. What? what well, obviously, a, they're getting there some other way. But you're asking all the right questions, Earl. Districts get to set what they call walk zones. They get to determine how far from a school you have to live before you qualify for um, transportation. Districts do that in different ways. There's no uniformity and there's no transparency because they don't report that district to the state, making it very hard to do an assessment of all of these issues that you're asking about. Well, that kind of makes sense. I can I can see why it would be unique to each school district and what they might do. Yeah, but we should know what those standards are so that state lawmakers can better plan and evaluate. Well, let's go on a different note. Uh, Kelly, you're here with us. And the report notes that school districts are generally funding yellow school buses as the mode of transportation. What type of innovative transportation models do you think the school district should be considering, and how come? Thanks, Earl. I think it's a it's a great question. The report notes that transportation looks the same it did 50 years ago. Other areas of education, we're seeing more innovation. And I think in terms of transportation... We should be looking at potentially contracting with private companies. There are special rideshare programs that specialize in students and, and younger the younger population, children. Hopskip Drive is one organization founded by actually a Coloradan to ensure stronger access to school choice and to enrichment opportunities here in Denver. They utilize RTD for high school students, so that might be another mode of transportation to consider. Carpooling, incentivizing parents to help and help to pay for carpooling. And we even heard, I know Jason heard this too at a recent roundtable, electric scooters. That sometimes for older students, when we talk about those walk zones, we want to make learning and going to school as accessible as possible. And if my walk zone's three miles right. and it's a cold, snowy day, and I'm a student that might be having some engagement challenges, we want it to be as easy as possible to get to school. So That's I'm right. hopeful the report will push districts and schools to think a little more innovatively about how do we ensure students are at school. Can I double down on a point you Please. started to make earlier? Yeah, some some things are more localized and have to be set in the context of the local community. And that's why we think it would be wise for uh, the state to actively engage folks closest to the issue. So, for example, families and students 
we saw in a neighboring state in Arizona, an innovation fund was established that allowed local communities to have these candid conversations about how to improve um, transportation. They got funding to run these programs as tests and pilots. Uh, and then you learn a lot, and the best solutions can be either scaled to reach other communities or, frankly, live there where it works best. But the point is, without some sort of innovation, some sort of space to allow for it, to encourage it, to incentivize it, we'll never, we'll never know the solutions because we aren't, we aren't asking the question. Let me wander down a bit of a different path for both of you, if I could, for a second. As you have said in previous studies, um, you know, the ultimate goal here is to have our children educated as best as possible so they can have the highest level of knowledge possible when they graduate and then become good citizens. How is the transportation issue possibly impacting that overall goal? Are we finding that some students just aren't going to school? Uh, or that some students are having learning issues because of the difficulty of transportation. What what impact, if any, is it having on our ability to educate our students? You're asking the right question. You've heard my answer before. There's a lot we don't know. I was stunned that one of the most compelling things was not in what we found in the data, but more the data we didn't find. So it's it's really hard to gauge some of these issues. But I can tell you that there are challenges. There's restrictions that don't allow a charter school to transport another school across district lines. There's challenges with that. There's a lack of kind of cooperation amongst school districts to cross these uh, boundaries to accommodate families who want to exercise choice. There's so much that could be done from a student-centric perspective that's just not being applied right now. Let me wander a little bit more off field, Kelly. I know one of the big deals in college is that if you are on an athletic team, you travel by bus someplace, and they set it up in such a way that they have accommodations so you can study in the setting that they've provided for your transportation. Is there any thought being given to making the transportation that the school is providing more of an environment where students can study if they so choose with whatever electronic connections that might be appropriate or maybe even, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, some kind of a laptop that they could have on their lap and, and do work if they so choose. Earl, I love this question because when it comes to transportation, I really want the conversation to focus on students and, and not the adults. It, we, we Often it is absolutely a thing. We have a workforce shortage, but love the conversation focused on the learner. An innovation that I think has been happening for a number of years, there are Wi-Fi-enabled buses that some districts, Jason's absolutely right, Colorado has a unique restriction in state law that says the only way to transport students outside of one school district to the other is if both school districts agree and sign an MOU. That's a policy that helps districts and not students. However, we are seeing districts partner together when it comes to sharing college and career pathways and opportunities. So down in the Springs in Southern Colorado, we have Widefield and another school district outside of Colorado Springs where they have set up an agreement where the students are accessing, it's Peyton, Peyton School District Mm -hmm. and Widefield School District. Students from Widefield get to enjoy the career and technical education construction program in a neighboring school district in Peyton 
and the Peyton students get to enjoy an advanced placement AP course in Widefield. And the two districts together have co-funded a Wi-Fi-enabled bus to transport those very lucky students, really opening up the college and career opportunities for them so they are not restricted to just what their single school district offers. I'd love to see more of that, and I appreciate that question. Yeah. I want want to just take a moment because it's important to acknowledge that the sheer uh, logistical feat of transporting this many kids safely – uh, to and from school every day. So hats off to the district transportation chiefs who are, in fact, doing a phenomenal job uh, at what they are charged with doing. They don't have much room in their day, let alone resources, to be experimental. Uh, that's why it really requires the engagement uh, to step back for lawmakers to really take a, a new and fresh look at it and f- hopefully start collecting the data that will allow them to do that. Uh, but also, let's give some credit where credit is due. It's it's a hard job transporting this many kids every day safely, and the districts get it done. I understand it's a hard job, and I understand the drivers have got a lot of responsibility. I understand that we want drivers who are, are qualified to do it. But I read your report, and I saw some of the distance these kids were traveling and how long they were on a bus, and in uh, western Colorado, and, you know, we Coloradoans tend to think that uh, Colorado is from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs, and, in fact, it's not. And if I had a son or daughter that was sitting on a bus for an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon, then I had him coming home to help me around the house or whatever, that's two hours of homework that he or she could be doing on the bus. And it just seems to me that that, uh, I have to go with Kelly on this. Let's start from the student side and figure out what do we need from the student side, then how do we get the adults to then to do what's necessary to help the students be you know, even more productive with regards to the time we're talking about. And it can be very useful time. That's, mm-hmm. Hey, that's just Earl right. You wrote the report. I'm just reacting to what I read. And you're acting exactly right. And by the way, to be clear, when I'm, you know, I'm a broken record talking about this data deficiency. We'll talk about that I, some more. What more data, what data is missing? I like that from both of you so that better decisions can be made. What else would you like to have in the way of data? Sure. Um, at the state level, if the state's going to have an interest in funding education transportation to the tune of 62 million, it should also have an interest in knowing how to most effectively do that. So there's that gap of eligible students versus how many actually ride. State doesn't collect that information. We need to know these things in order to better plan and understand why aren't they riding and address that. Um, uh, there's, there's, uh, excuse me, route information, not just the number of of miles, but actually how they're calculating routes to make sure they're most efficient. Yes, that's done at the district level, but there's some degree of reporting up to the state that would be useful. I want to be clear, too. I don't mean this as an additional bureaucratic burden on districts. I think the state also has an obligation to modernize the reporting system, making it easier for districts, because they've all described it as a very cumbersome process, especially when it comes to special education transportation, which is a whole nother ballgame. Well, your, your previous report, which I uh, would encourage everybody to read along with this one, talked about the uh, increased number of administrators 
that we have and how we would like to see some of that money instead of going to administration if possible going to teachers and teachers pay and my immediate thought as i read the report and some of what you're saying was oh boy here we go another person being added to added to the administration so if we can get that data Mm -hmm. that you're saying with with through the current means and it can be done without adding additional costs that that we have to somehow take away out of the teacher's salary, that's a win-win for me. Yeah, we're, we're looking at um, a return on investment. I think that uh, the state really should look at whether or not their current reporting system, some of which is paper-based, is actually the right and best way. So I think it does warrant some innovation. Kelly, you've, you've been in this area a long time. Please give us your thoughts. You know, information is power. And in Colorado, parents have a unique opportunity when it comes to school choice. And this is something that I think many of us feel real real passion about. That means you do not have to go to your neighborhood school. But school choice is a bit of a false choice if it doesn't come with transportation. And I think if we had better data on how school districts are using their transportation dollars, what the service gaps are, what they're prioritizing, do they fund unique abilities for students to have internships, apprenticeships, enjoy concurrent enrollment coursework at the actual institution of higher education? I think that information would be very powerful for parents, because as a parent myself, many of us are. Transportation means a lot to me, and I'm going to decide which school, which district I want to send my children if I know they have a plethora of transportation options to really make learning the best experience it could be. Sounds like a challenge to me, Kelly, Uh, and a challenge I hope that the state and the school districts can take up. I'd be more interested if you could, if you'd like to say anything more on recommendations, that's fine, but also if you would say anything more on your, from your perspective as to how we go about, other than additional data, who needs to take action here? Who do you, would you is it the school district? Is it state legislators? How would we hope uh, some of the recommendations you're talking about start to be acted upon? You know, I think I'll start with some things that are already starting to percolate at the Capitol this year. I was really pleased to see that bipartisan legislation was just introduced. This is 094, I believe, with Senator Lundeen and Senator Zenzinger wanting to authorize a task force. And I know some people will say, oh, great, another task force. But this is the kind of conversation the state needs to have, and it will address some of the data gaps that Jason's report is highlighting. But I think the idea of an some innovation incentives. We've seen that work well in K-12 policy in Colorado. Pay for, incentivize what you're, what you're looking for, and district behavior has changed. We've seen that with some workforce readiness, industry credential programs that Colorado has, and I do think an innovation concept, incentive dollars, would allow districts to test and experiment with new ideas. So that's at the state level you're talking about. We could be doing some things at the state level. Do you want to take a shot at the at the district level, the school district level? That, and you know, we we're very active here in Colorado in, in, in electing those folks. What would you challenge them to think about, Jason? Well, first of all, I fully support uh, the the work that's happening now at the state capitol. I'm glad to see such an immediate impact. Um, 
in terms of what can be done at the district level, I think districts should pursue collaborations and partnerships across district lines, like we talked a little bit about. Okay. I think that could be incredibly useful. I think, um, you know, sometimes labor unions uh, stand in the way of districts having the right tools in the toolbox. For, exa- for example, recruiting and retaining drivers, sometimes that requires differentiated pay. And districts need to stand their ground and really negotiate the best possible leverage points for themselves in order to uh, get the talent that they need and not be stopped by the unions who just want a, you know, flat step system in compensation. Now, sometimes you need differentiation. Finally, I would say school districts should do what they're supposed to do best, which is create talent pipelines. (laughs) They should be exposing students to great careers in logistics and transportations to help solve their own workforce shortage in the transportation department. Uh, Certainly, there are high-paying, in-demand jobs in transportation and logistics, not just bus drivers, uh, but they should be exposing kids uh, to some of those viable career pathways. Well, we certainly did have an appreciation for logistics issues internationally and domestically during the pandemic. So I think uh, most of us listening to the podcast can now identify with logistics as something that has got a career opportunity for the right folks. And and I was was a little uh, heartbroken that um, we didn't seize this moment maybe even last year when there was still uh, plush federal funds that could have funded some transportation innovation. But now I'm thinking maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Maybe this forces us to address it at the at the core level and have districts really make some tough decisions about how effective and efficient they want their transportation systems to be. Jason, Kelly, thank you so much for your time and all your hard work. And as you all know, um, education is the future of this country. And for us to be able to uh, educate our students and help them become knowledgeable and in the forefront of thinking and critical thinking only helps us be better and innovative and growing our own economy. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Earl. Thanks, Earl. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.